do this. Let's talk about talk. Hey there. I'm your communication coach, Dr. Andrea Wojnicki. Please call me Andrea. Thanks for listening to Talk About Talk. This is where we come to learn and talk about our communication skills. If you agree that we can all be a better manager, colleague, parent, partner, or friend when we communicate effectively, well, then you're in the right place. My goal is to help you learn the communication skills that will catapult your career and enhance your relationships. Today's topic is one of the most requested topics that I've ever had. We're talking about how to deal with negative people, particularly at work. You know who I'm talking about, that person who's always complaining or whose default comment is, no, we can't, or even just, no. The topic for today's episode was inspired by several emails and suggestions from Talk About Talk listeners. For example, about six months ago, a Talk About Talk listener named Dan, who lives in Chicago, emailed me. He requested that we cover this topic about how to communicate with negative people. He even took the time to write out a segmentation scheme of the types of negative people that he's encountered at work. There were six in his list, and I'll read them to you now. There's the overly defensive, the complainer slash whiner, the know-it-all, the manipulator, the quiet type, and the person with no people skills. I was so grateful that Dan took the time to write me, and I immediately added this topic of dealing with negative people to my list. But then, subsequently, several other people also requested the same topic. So, here we are. When I was thinking about this topic, I considered the fact that work in and of itself is stressful enough, right? We have huge, lofty targets and serious time constraints. And add to that the fact that we generally do not choose our coworkers, do we? So, it makes sense that working with negative people could be a common stressor. Well, good news. I have some actionable advice for you. In this podcast, you'll learn specific reasons why people might be acting so negatively and then what you can and should do about it. For this episode, I interviewed human resources expert Tamara Finley. She's the same guest expert who you heard from in Talk About Talk episode number 37, focused on choosing the ideal communication medium. Remember that one? When is it ideal to email, and when should you just pick up the phone? I'll leave a link to that episode in the show notes so you can find it easily. Now I'm going to get right into the interview, and I'll summarize everything at the end. As always, you do not need to take notes. You will find a helpful written summary in the show notes on the Talk About Talk website. One thing that I highlight in this summary for this episode is something that I want to draw your attention to right now before we get to the interview, and that is the SCARF model. The SCARF model is actually an acronym, S-C-A-R-F, that helps us understand the five social experiences that help us create strong threats or rewards in our brain. In other words, the five things that guide our behaviors, including negative behaviors. SCARF stands for S, status, C, certainty, A, autonomy, R, relatedness, and F, fairness. This is a great model to help us diagnose why people, including ourselves, are acting in a certain way. It is so helpful that I want you to start thinking about it in the back of your mind right now before we get to the interview. Yes, I'm playing mind games with you. So that was just a precursor. Tamara will give us more context in a minute. Let me introduce you to her. Tamara is a passionate, proactive, results-focused human resources leader who's known for translating business needs into integrated human resources solutions. In her career to date, she's helped firms ranging from startups to large global organizations maximize their people and culture as a competitive advantage. And she's done so in several industries, including financial services, wealth management, real estate, and technology, just to name a few. 
Tamara has a BA from Bishops, and she earned her Human Capital Strategist and Chartered Director designations. She also earned an EMBA from the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland and an MBA from the Rotman School at the University of Toronto. So she knows her stuff. Tamara is currently the Vice President of People and Culture at Progressa, a fast-growing fintech startup. Thank you, Tamara, so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, so communicating with difficult people, I guess by definition, this is a negative topic. I know it's a topic that causes people a lot of angst, as several listeners have emailed or mentioned to me that they have difficult or negative people at work, and they just don't know how to handle it. They're looking for some tips on how to best handle this. So in your experience as an HR professional, do you think that it's common that people have challenges with difficult people? I think at the end of the day, we're human and humans are complex. With such diversity in the workforce right now, more so than ever in our entire history, we all have our unique personalities, preferred ways of communicating and doing things, and everything is changing at the speed of light. Inherently, people are going to be stressed. Stress causes certain behaviors. And I think what we're seeing is not necessarily negative people. What we're seeing is people behaving in a way that we may not like. So this is an interesting question, at least as far as I'm concerned. Is it true maybe that some people are just difficult, like it's part of their personality? So I think we're all attracted to different people for different reasons. And some, obviously, we've all experienced where we've got some relationships that are way easier than others, and some we have to work on more than others. Right. We're not going to love everybody, but we can certainly appreciate them for what they bring to the table. Now, people's inherent wiring or what their natural go-to is. I've used a tool in the past that actually has been effective where I had this uh, one team member that always approached things right out of the gate from a negative perspective. I've worked with those people. The default answer is no. There's a lot of value in that in the right circumstances. So what we actually did is we learned about six thinking hats technique. Are you familiar with that? So what it is, it's a model that can be used for exploring different perspectives. And you can put on different hats depending on the circumstances or what you're trying to achieve. So it's a great way to solve problems as a group. So you could have an entire group, even though one may be natural wired as a black hat, so the pessimist, and one is more the yellow hat, which is an optimist. But you can have the entire group say, okay, let's now put on our black hat and think what are the risks if we do it this way? So that would be like the devil's advocate sort of. Exactly. The six thinking hats technique, the white one focuses on the facts. The red one focuses on emotion. The black hat, which is the one we were just talking about, is more the pessimist. It really is they're careful, they're cautious. The yellow focuses on what's good, so really the optimist. Green focuses on possibilities, Mm. and blue focuses on organizing. It really creates a common language and really takes the emotion and the personal out of it. It took me a while to get to this point to really appreciate the black hat, but I'd rather have the black hat and know as many risks and challenges up front so we can fix them or mitigate or deal with them before we go and launch a whole new program. I love this framework because we want to pull out those different perspectives. So would you try to hire people that represent each of those hats? Or would you say, 
today in this meeting, you're going to have the black hat. Or would you say during a meeting, each of us need to try and represent all of the hats? How does that work? It can work in so many different permutations. When we hire, we obviously want to hire for diversity. So we're hiring for different things we don't have. And some do assessments in terms of preference of working styles, thinking styles, that type of thing. It's really about leveraging the diversity and people's strengths to create that inclusive culture. So where I've seen it work effectively, so you're not just pinpointing, hey, you, you're the black hat. I need a black hat. I can imagine that happening. It's let's all put on our black hat today and let's go through what are the risks. Now, inherently, someone who's naturally wired as a black hat will probably be the first out of the gate or will have the most extensive list. Well, that's great. Right. But it gets people thinking and using different parts of their brain. Brilliant. How do we handle, though, someone who's got some negative stuff going on? It could be a sick relative. They could be exhausted because they have a new baby at home, whatever the situation is. How do you handle that? So I think there's two different things here. One is if you've got someone whose behavior has changed, then you want to understand why. Everyone's talked about work-life balance. I don't think that exists. I think it's work-life blending and Mm -hmm. it ebbs and flows and it's a give and take. It's not like we can park our personal when we walk into work and when we walk when we walk in the door at home it's not like we're parking work. So it's really how do we blend it as best as we can. So hopefully you've created a trusting, safe, psychologically safe environment that you can have those open and candid conversations and help them as a human being, not just as an employee. I lo- I love that point. Of course we need to have boundaries. But as Professor Ellen Oster, who I interviewed about change management, said, it's great to initiate or end an email or a conversation that you're having face-to-face with a colleague with, how was your weekend? Or how did that event go that your daughter had? Or whatever. And to actually really mean it. For sure. Because again, you're trying to connect emotionally. about it. One of the things that resonated with me is in a moment of crisis, if someone wasn't getting paid to be there, would they be there? So if this is happening after hours or requires extended hours, you want people to want to help you. They're going to help you as a person, Mm. not because of the job. Right. So how do you get that if you don't have some type of emotional connection and relationship with them? So this leads me to the next question, which is what if you're in a relationship situation at work where the person who you've identified as being difficult may be jealous of you or is highly competitive? And I can tell you, I have been in this situation. It was when I was in my 20s and I had some coworkers that were intensely competitive to the point that it affected our productivity. And this is where I'd use the SCARF model. It was introduced to me by a neuroscientist, Mm -hmm. Dr. Carlos Adel. It's really helpful in dealing with resistance and threats. The pace of change, we're always running at Mach 7. Mm -hmm. And running at Mach 7 often puts us all under a lot of stress. So the behaviors we're seeing are people under stressful situations. How do we create that psychologically safe environment? S is for status. So the perception of being compared either higher or below our peers. Okay. C is for certainty. So it's all about the need for clarity and ability to make accurate predictions about the future. A is autonomy and its sense of control over events in our lives. And R is for relatedness. So sense of having shared goals. So it's really that sense of belonging, being in the in-group. 
And then F, the final one of SCARF is fairness, the sense that we're being respected and treated fairly in comparison to others. When that's at risk, that's when we start to see all these, what you so-called negative behaviors. So it's all about the brain and how we behave and why is that? So what are they motivated by? So they want to get a promotion and they believe that if you get one, they aren't. Look at the pie scenario. Do we only have X many slices or can we increase the number of slices Mm -hmm. or can we make a bigger pie or create two pies? Sometimes in my experience, these people may believe that there is a finite pie, not an infinite pie, right? And if you get a big piece, they get a small piece. I look at it as a view as my responsibility as a leader to try to unlock that for them, to help them learn and grow and really develop. So I think you just answered my next question. Is it helpful or necessary to diagnose what's going on in order to deal with it? Absolutely. And my work and personal experience is left undiagnosed. Not only does it not go away, it often explodes. (laughs) It gets worse. Right. So after we've diagnosed what may be going on in the relationship or with the person that is quote unquote difficult, we need to know what to do, how to handle the situation. And when I was doing some research for this episode, I read something about transitivity, which is another theory that I love. And it applies to so many relationship contexts and communication contexts. And this particular article said something about dealing with difficult people is not when we should be thinking about transitivity. In other words, two negatives does not equal a positive. We need to deal with negativity in a positive way. Again, this is where it's tapping into the human and the emotional connection. What would you want in their shoes? They may not even be aware of the impact their behavior is having. And so if you've built a relationship that's based on trust and you created that trusted environment and psychologically safe environment to be able to provide that ongoing back and forth feedback real time saying, This is how it makes me feel because no one can tell you how to feel. Mm. Can you share with the listeners some of the more typical reasons why someone might be difficult? Often it's because they're acting out of fear. And so again, that comes to the SCAR model, what's motivating, what do they perceive is at risk, what they perceive has changed. So is it because they feel they don't have the tools that they need to do their job, to do something new, something's changed? Is it that they've got some something completely different personal issues going on that they need to deal with? So there's various different things, and but that again comes back to it. That's why I think the SCARF model is so effective because it's our natural wiring. It's about the brain. Okay. The first thing we do is diagnose and use the SCARF model. So status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness, and think about which one or ones of those reasons that someone may have for behaving in a difficult way. And not only in others, but also in ourselves. Absolutely. So what are our triggers? So for example, I know under certain circumstances, that's going to be my trigger and I'm going to behave in a way I don't want to behave. So now knowing that I can catch it and hopefully stop it before it starts. Mm, This has such relevance, even within like a family dynamic in a personal situation. For sure. Absolutely. You can apply this in all parts of life. So what then should you do? You've, number one, done the diagnosis. What's the next step? Depends what role you're in. And I think it's really exhibiting empathy and kindness. Then it's setting clear expectations and making sure people have the tools to do their job. So it comes down to Maslow's theory. Let's cover off the basics so that people can really 
excel. They can get to develop self-actualization, all those great things. Mm -hmm. You want it real time. So can you provide us maybe with, I'm putting you on the spot here, but with some scripts, things to say when someone we've diagnosed what the situation is and we want to make it clear that we want to help the person and we want to continue working with them. You just said it right there. And if it's coming from your heart, again, it's based on that relationship, then people are open to that. It's like, then how can I help you? Hmm. I had one situation when I was a manager that I sometimes think about was one of my things that I'm most proud of. I got promoted slightly in advance of one of my peers. And then I was put in the awkward, we were put in the awkward situation of me managing him. And for the first week, it was incredibly challenging. And we were butting heads and we kind of didn't know how to act. We went from peers to subordinate and boss. And so I asked him to come into my office and close the door. And I said, listen, you need to get promoted and I need to be identified as a great manager. So let's get you promoted as quickly as possible. And let's make that our goal because that'll also make me look like a great manager and we can do this. And he was like, he actually hugged me and he got promoted pretty darn quickly because we were both totally focused on that. So we came up with, uh, you know, basically common ground. Well, it's all about creating win-win. So whatever makes sense and is appropriate under the circumstances. I also had similar scenario where I ended up taking on my peer as a direct report and her entire team. I can imagine that that would be a particularly sensitive conversation to have, particularly when you're working in HR. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> it was definitely a challenging moment, but we got through it quite well. So what are some of the more common mistakes that people make when there's someone difficult in their office? Well, there's a bunch of things. One is just ignoring it and thinking it's going to go away. Mm. I have yet to see it actually go away on its own. The other thing is it's just going out and talking to other people instead of talking to the person directly. Ah, uh, I think that's a big one. It's a huge one. And so again, it creates this big snowball and all these are avoidable. So when you're doing the diagnosis, that doesn't mean collecting information from other people. Well, yes and no. It really depends on the circumstances, but you can do it in a very professional, respectful way. Sometimes the relationship is dictated to us, as we know, personally and professionally, but professionally in terms of our level. Do you have any advice specifically about dealing with a difficult subordinate and then dealing with a difficult peer and then dealing with a difficult boss? In terms of a subordinate, I think we just talked about that, where you're the leader. And that's where I think it's your accountability as a leader to really, in private, work with them to understand where's this coming from. These are your expectations. These are the observations. This is how it's make you feel or others feel or what have you. I think your privacy comment needs to be double underlined there. Yeah, absolutely. No matter who it is. Absolutely. This is something that's confidential. And then in terms of a boss, it's, I would say it's somewhat similar. Hopefully you've created or trying to focus on creating a good working relationship. You don't have to be best friends, but a good working relationship. And it's the same thing. I would say the peer is probably the most challenging. Probably the most common too. But where I see relationships erode, where it is the peer, it's where there's not clear accountabilities. I always encourage first, 
go to the person directly because it's much easier to catch it. You've got more examples and it, it honestly, it actually helps build the relationship going forward. So mm. that's where I recommend taking people out for coffee, for lunch, a walk. And what I found effective is really trying to get them outside of the normal environment. So go for a walk to the coffee shop mm. or to lunch or get to know them as a person. Because once you know someone more on a personal level, it's amazing how much better you you can work together. That's true. That's true. Your comment about having a difficult boss reminded me of the story when I had a very, very difficult manager. And I remember I called my dad who lived in a different city. And I said, dad, I don't know what to do because I, I don't respect him. And he's incredibly difficult. And he said, well, here's two questions. Number one, does his personality and his behavior represent the culture of the firm you're at? Because if it does, you need to get out of there. And I said, no, it doesn't. He said, okay, so you're probably fine. And number two, does this provide a learning opportunity for you? And I said, well, yeah, how not to treat my subordinates? And he said, okay, so you're all good. Great questions. Yeah. Thanks, Dad. (laughs) (laughs) So in my mind, I have a hierarchy of responses going from ignore it to implicitly dealing with it to explicitly having a conversation with the person, which I hear is your main recommendation. And then the last rung of that hierarchy is going to your boss or going to the HR department and formally complaining. Under what conditions would that be the ideal response? Based on your continuum, A, that you've actually observed this type of behavior with your own eyes and you haven't been successful in resolving it on your own or it's escalated in terms of impact, that's where I think the whole escalation process comes into play. Okay. What does HR do when someone comes in and says, this person's making my life hell, like something's got to happen or I'm leaving? Well, and it depends on what it is. Again, and actually, interestingly enough, it comes back to your dad's questions to understand, is this behavior what we want? Is that who we are as an organization? If it's not aligned, then we need to understand, is this a one-off? Is it circumstantial or is it inherent? And if so, have we not done our job in terms of acquiring talent to ensure that they've got the same values as we as an organization? Mm -hmm. And or clarifying what the expectations are. Exactly. Okay. Is there anything else you want to add about communicating with difficult people? I keep coming back to this. We're human and we have emotions and we're not robots. So treat people like humans, connect with them on a personal level, and remember the whole SCARF model. I think it's a phenomenal model in terms of how we control and manage our own emotions and know our own trigger points, as well as for others and recognizing it in others. Thank you very much, Tamara, for sharing your insights and your expertise about dealing with difficult people. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed our dialogue and I've learned a few new things to try. Oh, me too. Thank you. So there you go. I hope you're feeling better equipped for dealing with negative people. We learned two main things here. We learned how to one, diagnose why people are acting negatively, and two, what we can and should do about it. So first, diagnosing. The two frameworks for diagnosing how and why people are acting negative are the SCARF model and the Six Hats model. As I highlighted at the beginning, the SCARF model is very helpful in helping us diagnose what's going on when someone's being negative. Again, SCARF stands for Status, Certainty, Autonomy, Relatedness, and Fairness. Whenever people, including ourselves, believe that any of these things are under threat, it can adversely affect our behavior. So if someone's acting a bit off, try running through this list in your mind and try to diagnose what might be going on. 
The second diagnostic model that Tamara mentioned is the six hats model, which may explain a temporary mood or even a personality tendency. The six hats are different colors. Red is focused on emotions. Black is pessimism. Yellow is optimism. Green is focused on possibilities. Blue is focused on organizing. And white is focused on information. So if someone's acting like they have a black hat, the pessimist, Tamara suggests a few things that you can do. You can acknowledge first that we need all of these perspectives, all of these hats, including being critical and pessimistic to be productive and to make the best decisions as a team. You can also assign different hats to different people around the table or even suggest that everybody around the table adopt a certain hat. I'll leave links to helpful resources regarding the six hats and the scarf model in the show notes if you're looking for more. Now, in terms of what to do when you're faced with one of these negative people at work, this is the real question that you're curious about, right? Tamara provided several suggestions that can help us. For starters, we need to diagnose what's going on, like I just said. Tamara suggests considering first whether something has changed or whether it's an inherent disposition. You can independently consider the SCARF model in relation to the person's behavior and try to figure out what's wrong. Once you've done some of that reflection, you can also talk to the person. Yes, talk. A few suggestions, depending on who this negative person is within the hierarchy of your organization, are as follows. So first, if it's a peer, Tamara highlighted that this is not only very common, but it's also very challenging. She suggests get out of the office and talk with your colleague on a more personal level. Go out for coffee or lunch or go for a walk. Get to know them. As Tamara says, once you get to know someone on a more personal level, it's amazing how much better you'll work together. Be compassionate and empathetic and try to find some common ground, maybe even a common goal. This all applies if the person who's being negative is your subordinate. But in this case, if you're the boss, you can also talk to them about the resources available to the person to help them do their job, as well as the expectations and values of the organization. If it's your boss, on the other hand, who's wearing the black hat and who's tough to work for, well, then I suggest asking yourself the two questions that my dad suggested to me. Number one, do his or her personal values and behavior reflect those of the organization? If yes, then you probably need to get out of there. And if no, then things usually have a way of sorting themselves out. And question number two, are you learning things from working for this person? Try focusing on the learning experience in the meantime. Okay. Some do-nots in terms of dealing with negative people. Number one from Tamara, do not ignore it. It rarely, rarely gets better, and in fact, it usually only gets worse. And number two, don't go to your boss or to human resources to tattle unless you have three things covered. A, you've observed the behavior with your very own eyes. This is not just hearsay. B, you have not been successful in resolving it on your own. And C, if it's escalated in terms of its negative impact. And the last thing to not do when you're dealing with a negative person, do not gossip or talk to others about it unnecessarily. Do not compromise people's privacy. Feedback and sensitive discussions should always be done in private. All right, two last things that I want to highlight with regards to this topic. The first is that we are all working so hard these days, and sometimes we just need to give each other a break. Tamara highlighted that things are changing rapidly. Mach 7, she said, and it's stressful. Instead of focusing on work-life balance, focus more on work-life blending. Yes, of course there should be boundaries between your work and your personal life, but getting to know your colleagues as humans really can help. And that leads me to Tamara's last point that I want to highlight. 
when the going gets tough at work, when things are moving too fast and the stress hits the boiling point, when you're asking people to work extra hours, that's when the personal relationships matter the most. Your coworkers are going to choose to help you as a person, not just because of the job. Great point. And that's it for this episode. Thank you again to human resources expert Tamara Finley for sharing her insights. I'm sure you agree that Tamara's expertise is incredibly helpful in advising us how to be better communicators at work. I'm hoping to invite Tamara back soon for another topic. And speaking of thank yous, thank you to Dan in Chicago and all of the other listeners who've connected with me through email or social media with feedback or suggestions. If you have an idea for a communications-focused Talk About Talk topic, or maybe a guest expert, please let me know. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, I'm hoping you'll do three things. First, subscribe to the Talk About Talk podcast. That way, every two weeks, the newest podcast will automatically show up for you. And it's so easy. Just go to the Talk About Talk website and click on podcast. Secondly, I hope you'll tell your friends about this podcast. Word of mouth is the number one way that people learn about podcasts. And last, I really hope you'll sign up for the Talk About Talk weekly email newsletter. If you're only listening to the podcast and not getting the newsletter, you're missing out on half the learnings. Trust me, there's lots to learn. So, got it? Subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends about it, and sign up for the email newsletter. I would be very grateful. Thank you. Talk soon. Talk soon.